Hi, I'm Galeed Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson, and you're listening to Double Read Dish. A podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. increasingly needs us to be more creative, more innovative, and more effective, a career in music can be approached in a lot of different ways. In our bonus episode series, Mavericks, we bring you the voices of some of the Double Read community's biggest trailblazers, each forging their musical path in their own unique way. For this Mavericks episode, we welcome oboist Laura Medisky. Laura, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. So can we start off with our standard question um, and have you tell us who you are and what you do and how you got there? Yeah, I am an oboist uh, living in Madison, Wisconsin. I'm also a certified Alexander Technique teacher. And uh, how I got here, um, I'll give you the the shortest, funnest version of this. Um, I'm I'm from Seattle originally and... um, had decided I wanted to go into music uh, to major in oboe performance. And uh, during my senior year, I started having some pain in my arms, a little bit of tendonitis. This was way back in the 90s when um, people were just sort of starting to talk about um, performance injuries um, more openly. But I went to uh, a doctor then, and he said, oh, easy, quit the oboe. So um, that was the end of me seeking uh, medical attention for that for a while. Um, so I kind of ignored it and played through the pain. Um, and I uh, started school, uh, my undergrad, at the University of Illinois. Um, at the time, Nancy King was the professor there. And uh, the, well, you guys interviewed Nancy and heard her whole story about the car accident and everything that happened with her. And so she was actually a really great teacher for me at the time um, because um, that pain got really, really unbearable and kind of all-encompassing. And um, I was at U of I for four semesters. I only made it to my jury that first semester um, because of pain. Um, Every other semester, I ended up kind of quitting the oboe halfway through, uh, and Nancy was extremely understanding um, and did her best with me. So... uh, there happens to be, now there are two, but there, at the time there was one Alexander Technique training course in Urbana, Illinois. And um, I was a sad little sophomore, like not functioning. I mean, it wasn't just like it hurt when I played the oboe. It was um, everything hurt. My whole upper body, I couldn't turn a doorknob. I couldn't uh, lift a glass of water with one hand. It was just everything. was. In, I was in so much pain. And... Um, couldn't take notes in class. I actually got uh, classified as a disabled student, um, so I could get a note taker, which I never took advantage of because I stopped going to class. So stay in school, everyone. But um, I was going to physical therapy or occupational therapy twice a week, and literally nothing changed. So um, the the fourth semester I was there, I decided to quit the oboe. Um, and let let everything heal. And I quit the oboe, and literally nothing changed. Um, so it was clear that the oboe was not the problem. And so everyone um, kind of around said, Laura, you got to try Alexander Technique, because it was very much part of the culture in that town and the department. 
Um, and so I did, and I did not understand anything that happened in that first lesson. Um, but I remember walking away thinking, wow, this feels way different. Something that I had this sense of lightness. It didn't change the amount of pain I was in. I was just so inflamed. But um, uh, I just, there was something about it that, that I, I saw hope. And as I took lessons, I, I realized part of that hope was that Alexander Technique um, compared to like the occupational therapy was going to give me a way to be in control of my own body. Um, and so I, not only had I quit the oboe, but then I decided to drop out of school. I wasn't going to class anyway because I was such a mess. But um, uh, that fall, uh, I joined an Alexander Technique training course. So my undergrad was completely disrupted. Um, by that pain, but it, it landed me in that Alexander Technique training course, which completely influenced uh, the rest of my life, not just my oboe playing, but everything, um, everything in my life. So um, I told you this was going to be the fun version. Um, so this was, um, I, I, that takes three years. I took two and a half years off from oboe, did not play the oboe that whole time. Um, and when I started playing again, I took my oboe to my Alexander teacher and um sort of started building things back. Um, and then, so that, I ended up being in Urbana for about five years. And once that was over, I had to get out. I just needed a change of scenery. So I transferred um, into Arizona State and finished my undergrad there with uh, Martin Schering. And then I got my master's at UCLA with uh, Marion Kruzik and then ended up in Madison because I got my doctorate at UW-Madison uh, with Mark Fink. So I graduated with my DNA in 2010. So it's been nearly seven years since I graduated. It sounds like Alexander Technique helped you heal your body, but it sounds like it also um, brought you back emotionally. Because if it were me and I had to quit the oboe for two and a half years because the pain was too much, I think I also would have been somewhat of a mess. Do you see that in your Alexander Technique students where it helps, you know, both aspects of life? Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, in fact, most of my Alexander students are not musicians. Um, a lot of people come to Alexander Technique because of chronic pain um, or sometimes a specific injury, but sometimes it's, it's more just kind of no reason. They just have had this pain for years. And... Um, while I'm not at all remotely a qualified psychologist, um, there's definitely um, a, a factor that factors in. And as someone that lived with such great pain for so long, um, I'm extremely empathetic. And um, I think that's, I think it's unavoidable. And I think um, depression goes hand in hand with chronic pain. Um, and that's, again, what the Alexander Technique was so attractive to me is that it, it gave me hope for control over over what was happening. And it's not just, it's not a therapy. It is not a physical therapy. Um, and I think that actually um, it sort of is assumed that that's what it is, especially in musicians. Um, most of us don't do Alexander Technique until there's a problem. Um, and, and so it's sort of lumped together with um, PT or OT, but... Um, Alexander Technique really is, it's an educational method, um, but that kind of a generic uh, definition of it. It's an educational method that teaches people how to use their bodies better. Um, 
but there are no exercises. There's, you know, you don't go home and, and do all these certain movements to learn how to do it. It's, it's really um, deeply philosophical. And, um, you know, right now there's this trend. Everyone's talking about mindfulness, um, which is amazing because for me, Alexander Technique, like that is mindfulness. It's being aware of what you're doing um, and being aware of um, potential for improvement. Um, so that it is, um, for that reason, it really relates to musicians as well. We use our bodies um, for the smallest movements, and we really should know what the process is behind that. Um, so I'd, I'd love to explore Alexander Technique and the role it plays in your career um, more perhaps later. But um, another really important aspect of who you are and what you do is your private studio um, in Madison, which is quite sizable. And so I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about you as a studio teacher and describe um, how you went about building this really thriving studio and just kind of describe yourself as a pedagogue a little bit. Well, I've always been interested in teaching uh, privately. My first student, I was a junior in high school, um, and I, I always considered that that, that was going to be part of my life, um, and I, which is, of course, a natural um, outcome for most musicians to teach privately. Uh, but I... Um, as a young student, I didn't have the best instruction. I had a teacher. He was not really a professional oboist. Um, he was not really a nice person. And he was not really a good teacher. And he was really not the right teacher for me. Um, and it took me years to kind of sort out, like, what, what would I have wanted when I was 14? Um, I should say my senior year in high school, I studied, I switched teachers and studied with Shannon Spichotti, who um, she's still in Seattle. Um, but that, that first teacher, that really made an impression on me. Um, and so as I, you know, you move around when you're in school, you always kind of pick up students as you go. So it took me a while to be in a place long enough to establish something. And so I've been in Madison for, I guess, this is going to be my 11th year. And so, yeah, I've built my studio up. And um, my whole philosophy is what did 14-year-old Laura not get? And how do I give that to these students? Um, so it was quite sizable. I had 30 students at one point, um, and now I'm down to 19, which is super exciting um, because 30 is too many. So what did 14-year-old Laura need? How do you approach giving them that? What does that look like? 14-year-old um, Laura. Laura did not have good technique. I'm doing air quotes. You can't see them, but it's there. Um, <laughs> technique never came naturally to me. I also couldn't hear when I was out of tune or in tune. I probably never was in tune. Um, and I was also, uh, and still am, well, now I'm a recovering perfectionist. Um, and so for me, uh, at that age, I, I wasn't good enough because I wasn't perfect right away. And I had a teacher saying, just keep practicing. Just do it slowly and you'll get it. And there's a lot that goes into slow practice. <laughs> you don't just do it and get better. And um, I never understood that. And so oboe became very frustrating. There were so many things that um, I think were natural to me, uh, phrasing, and, and uh, I think I always had an okay tone back then. Um, but um, there was this whole of the process of actually 
learning how to do something. And this this is where Alexander Technique is completely integrated in, into how I practice and how I teach my students. So everything we do is a set of procedures. Um, setting an embouchure, there is a mental procedure, there's a physical procedure that we go through to create our embouchure. Our reads are slightly different. Every read is different from the other. They have this lifespan where we need to approach them slightly different when we're breaking them in versus when they're on their last breath. Um, and so there's a procedure that you need um, to set up uh, to, to approach the instrument. Or if you can't play your C-sharp harmonic minor scale, um, trying over and over and over and over, and you finally get it right the 10th time, is not good enough, um, which I think most of us know. Um, for me at that age, uh, no one told me how to do it any better. Just do it until you get it right. And so that's in, in my studio. Um, I'm very process-oriented. Um, I can spot those perfectionists, and I shut them down. They start trying really hard. I see them getting frustrated, fr frustrated and I always go back, and I say, okay, let's start at the beginning. What is your process? And I, I always make them talk. Um, they probably think I talk a lot, but I make them try to, <laughs> try to make them talk more than I do. Um, but what is your thought process when you're making the, this mistake? At what point did it go wrong, and how are we going to nip it in the bud before we get to that point? Um, you have some really innovative and outside-the-box motivational techniques for your students uh, to have incentive to learn new things, such as Oboe Dojo. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, I don't even feel like it's innovative. It's just what I do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but Oboe Dojo, I, I actually, um, you know, I, there are auditions that your students have to go through, you know, youth symphony or, or whatever, your local area of the auditions they have to do. There's always a scale requirement uh, for those auditions. And I had a handful of students taking these, and they would say, oh, yeah, I know my scales. And I'd be like, great, good, move on. And then, you know, the week before their audition, we'd run the audition, I realized, well, they can't even play B-flat reliably. So um, I, I really wanted to figure out a way to integrate it into my studio teaching. Um, and it can take up a whole lesson. And I, I didn't want it to be something that was all-encompassing, but that they knew was going to be part of their oboe study. So I, I created this um, oboe dojo program where I think there are seven belts all together, um, where each belt is a, a new level, um, you know, progressing through technical requirements. And it really... Of course, it's for the students, but it's really for me and my sanity as a teacher. Like, kid, go home, practice your orange belt requirements, show up next week ready to play them, um, or whenever. It might take a month. I don't care how long it takes as long as they're working towards it. So um, really, like, that's what it is. It's more selfish. It was my own self-preservation, not having to spend lessons making, um, spending time uh, practicing scales, but... Um, really emphasizing the fundamentals and, and instilling a sense of um, in them like why that's important. So um, you know the 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 first belt is the white belt. All they have to do is be a member of the studio and play the this warm up exercise. So they all get their first belt immediately, and, and it's cute sometimes. They're like, "Well, I got it." I'm like, "Well, everyone gets it." But you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's that accomplishment right away. And they get a little white belt that says, I, I ordered them, they say Majesty Oboe Studio on them, and they tie it onto their case. And so all my students, have, they're like walking advertisements for my studio. Um, <laughs> but, so you know, and then the yellow belt, you, you learn all your major scales. 
um, which is pretty attainable. Um, so they get that right away, and then they realize for the orange belt, you might um, add in the natural minor scales. Well, if you know all your major scales, natural minor scales really aren't that hard, um, but there's a, a thought process you have to go through to figure them out. So, um, again, it comes back to this procedure, so um, our idea of procedure. So when they go to an audition and, and someone says, can you play B-flat melodic minor, they might be, like, freaking out, but then they have this really <laughs> long background of fig- uh, knowing how to figure out what that scale is, how it relates to the major key or whatever they need to do, and then they can play it, um, hopefully reliably, in their audition. You talk about um okay go home and and practice these fundamentals for your yellow belt test or your orange belt test or or whatnot and internally i go oh that sounds so wonderful how does she trust (laughs) that they're actually (laughs) going to do it or how how does she inspire these students to actually do it and and maybe this is a the kind of dual part question because before you said my studio was at 30 and now it's at 19 and and perhaps some of that is graduation and those type of things but I suspect perhaps also there's a a part of knowing when to part ways for the students and I feel like for those of us you know especially on the endangered instruments or those of us who are trying to build the idea of turning away even those students who really don't work um is kind of this inconceivable idea. Um, but obviously you are either um, creating or holding standards for students to operate at a certain level. So how do you go about that? Is it a combination of, you know, inspiring those students and kind of parting ways? Or how do you approach getting these results that sound wonderful? <laughs> um, but I, I'm so, you know, curious as to how you actually go about achieving them. Yeah, I think in terms of inspiring, I'm not even set out to inspire, really. I'm, I'm here to teach them how to play the oboe um, and and teach them how to um, be an independent um, musician. So uh, we actually do spend a lot of time, especially at the beginning of that oboe jojo um, chart, we, spend, we do spend a lot of time in their lessons um, talking about scales and how to do it. And, and while I'm doing that, it's not just so that they can play a scale. I'm instilling practice strategies um, and, and certain standards. Um, so when, for example, when you take your yellow belt test, you're only allowed one mistake. Um, that's ridiculous. Like, can you imagine going into a concert and being only allowed one mistake? Um, <laughs> so to say that to a 15-year-old, um, that's a little bit stressful. But I really stick to that because then once they do it, they really get this sense of achievement. Um, and there's this big chart in my studio with everyone's name. So they can see <laughs> when other people are moving up, um, they can see if they're not. So there's this kind of self-motivation behind it. So, um, and you know, every fall I also do a technique challenge where everyone's name is on this board and they get little stickers when they pass a scale or whatever, but they can kind of compare themselves. So uh, I, I, I think, I'm not even sure, but I think that is um, part of the motivation. And um, really a student can be on, he could be on stuck on A major for five weeks and I never get mad at them. I never criticize them. I we we approach it as problem solving. Like, wow, you had your first scales, no problem. What is it about a major? Um, and so whether it's you know how they're holding the oboe, they're pinky, like they can't hit the G sharp, or you know something, we we sort that out. And I think it's kind of empowering to them. 
And um, as far as cutting losses, is that how you put that? <laughs> um, and actually, right now, I, like I said, I think I have 19 students, and I really enjoy working with all of them. And I, I don't think I've ever had a student that I like didn't like the, them as a person, but you certainly see that name in your calendar, and you're like, oh, here comes so-and-so. Their lessons are excruciating. Um, and it's not because they're a bad person. It's not because I'm a bad teacher. It might not even be that we're a mismatch personality-wise, but it might be that they're not invested in the oboe the way I am. Or, you know, they might want to play in band but not really understand what they're doing the way I want to understand. Um, so uh, I, I always put the student first. So I will endure <laughs> a lot, or I have in the past, of, of those painful lessons to see, well, when this kid gets to um, sophomore year, maybe they'll want to be on the same page as me. So I, I'll kind of go through a lot waiting to see if, if they will – want to be in my studio and and when they really probably when they hit like looking at the clock five times in that half an hour that's when I'm like okay <laughs> um they're not happy so I I usually present it as I don't think you're happy here and I I'll email the parents and say here's what I noticed here are my expectations I'm not sure if this is the right time um I always I don't know if it's manipulative, but I always um, send that message in a way that leaves the choice up to them, but it kind of isn't in some ways. But um, I, I always say the studio door, studio door is always open when you want to come back, if you want to come back. On your website, you have your oboe studio policies and um, students audition to be admitted into the Medisky Oboe Studio, and there is a one-month trial period, and um, you have definite expectations um, for uh, each student and for the lessons, and it's very clearly laid out. Um, what are some of the policies that, in your experience, you've found that uh, to be really, really important. Because um, like Jackie said, on these endangered instruments, sometimes we just like take the students <laughs> and it's not as clearly laid out as what you have on um, your website. Can, so can you talk about um, maybe your path to creating some of these really um, clear and useful policies? Uh, I think most of those policies evolved out of someone taking advantage of me. <laughs> you know, like uh, and in fact, I mentioned my first student, I was a junior in high school, um, and it was um, maybe an eighth grader or something, ninth grader even. The parents would drop him off, and 20 minutes past his lesson time, this kid was still in my house. And, um, you know, so that was that was a, a policy I knew right away, um, you know, respect my time. Uh, so I think a lot of it has come out of that, which is probably true for most people, or, you know, when you're writing a syllabus and, you know, you, you put things in there because someone did something weird one year, so you got to put it in your syllabus for the next 10. Um, so I think a lot of, um, I, I don't think a lot of people read the policies as carefully as, you know, how I wrote them, but they're also there for, um, you know, when, when someone questions you for, like, the cancellation policy. Um, it's been years, but since I've had to, but I've definitely gotten into it with parents about what they owe me. Um, and I've certainly written to parents saying, you need to understand this is how I make my living. Um, you know, and it doesn't feel good to say that stuff. But so um, if your policies are there, you can just say, check out the policies. Um, practice expectations, I think I have that in there. That just comes from experience, like, realistically, how much is a beginner going to practice? You know, um, and you, you hear kids that say, my teacher says I need to practice every day. No, I don't practice every day. Why is a sixth grader going to practice every day? Three days a, a week would be great. 
So um, having realistic expectations and things like that, um, I, I don't know, I just kind of put that in there sort of um, so that there's an obvious structure and expectation to the studio, but also that there there's room for individuality um, in terms of, for practicing anyway, in terms of oboe life balance. Um, the auditions I started a couple of years ago, and that was really just to, uh, I mean, it's clearly a vetting process <laughs> to, to find students that are already um, hard workers. And I want to say maybe five students have actually had the audition so far, five or six. No one's not passed the audition. Um, just having that audition um, <laughs> requirement is kind of a screening process to begin with. Everyone knows that. That's why we have auditions. Um, so seeing the fact that they'll come in, that um, they're willing to come in prepared to play an audition is already in, in, an indication that they're a hard worker. Um, or, you know, people will email and say, my student wants to try oboe lessons, and I'll say, great, here's the audition process, and then I never hear back. And I think, okay, either I scare them off and I missed an opportunity, or they were successfully weeded. Um, so if you think about, like, studio recruitment and retention, um, it's not awesome to turn away all the beginners. Um, you might have a great beginner and then miss out on that relationship because um, you turn them away. So um, I'm just now starting what I'm calling my teacher-in-training program, um, which I sort of did a couple years ago, but, like, the, the hard launch is coming up this summer, where um, the beginners that do want to um, get into my studio um, are going to be matched with uh, one of my advanced high school students. So I think I have five or six high school students interested in this. Um, so um, the, the kids, the high school students will take a workshop with me, kind of oboe pedagogy, um, how to teach, how to structure a lesson, um, and how to be responsible communicators and things like that. Um, and then I'll match them with one of the, the younger students. And so the high school student gets the experience of teaching, um, and the younger student gets to work with, you know, a, some kind of expert in the oboe. Um, a high school student, I think, is certainly qualified to, to work with a beginner for a year. So um, they'll work on fundamentals and all that. And if that young student is interested in being in my studio, part of that year or two or whatever of lessons will be um, my high school student helping them prepare their audition into my studio. So one of the things we want to do with this Maverick series is um, kind of combat that message that the two things you do in music professionally are symphony orchestra playing or higher education. And if you're not doing those things, you should be striving to do those things or you should feel bad about not doing those things, um, which I think is a really pervasive idea um, among professional musicians and perhaps even more aspiring professional musicians. And you and all of our Mavericks actually are people who have – opted out of higher ed or have intentionally vacated a position. Um, and so could you talk about the thought process and how you went about deciding to pursue self-employment on the oboe and Alexander technique and how you felt empowered to kind of reject this notion of what we should be doing or what we should want to do as musicians? Yeah. Um, well, so the Alexander technique part. Um, so I certified to do that um, in 2000. So that's always been, I've always been able to do that on the side. But again, moving around uh, for school, it's hard to get established. 
But I've always and, and still do consider myself a professional musician first. Um, and so Alexander Technique, somehow I always kind of lumped it together with oboe teaching. I didn't know what to charge. I just kind of charged the same amount. Um, so it was always something that was just something I did. Um, and I, I, um, since I've been certified, I have always done like, you know, go do um, guest presentations and things like that. But it, it never really was at the forefront of what I considered a career. Um, so I, at the end of my DMA, I started teaching um, adjunct at a university that was, um, well, it was a 75 minute commute um, for my house. And so, of course, I just started with the oboe studio, but gradually would add um, more classes to my load, um, and I think my highest percentage there was 75%, um, teaching music appreciation, uh, the chamber music coordinator, um, there was a class there that dealt with body, body works, so I um, did that. I even taught um, private Alexander Technique lessons there. I think I even had like 12 students taking Alexander lessons. Um, I always thought, or I always wanted to try classroom teaching. Um, I always envisioned myself um, teaching theory or music of preach or um, even music history. Um, and so that all seemed like it was the right path uh, or live in the dream or whatever. Uh, but I, it was sort of cycling, um, partially because of the distance. But, you know, when you're in your car seven hours a week, <laughs> That's a that's a lot a lot of wasted time for um, someone that needs to be making reads or practicing, or could be teaching. So my last semester at that job, I also was um, a sabbatical replacement at another school, uh, which was I think a two and a half hour drive. So that last semester was pretty bananas, um, and I w- wasn't happy, um, and my wife was certainly not balanced, um, and. When I left, um, I had a contract. It was again, it was 75%, and um, which was I'll, it, it was a $23,000 contract, you know, for the whole year. That's that's a big chunk of money, um, and I I didn't I didn't want to go back. And I um, that's a big gamble. That's a big leap of faith to to turn that down. But I I kind of did the math, I mentioned the seven hours of driving in the car, well, seven hours in the car um, could be, you know, how many students, but how many students would I need to make up that amount of money, and it turned out when I did the math that if I just taught seven more hours a week, that actually took care of that <laughs> that hole, <laughs> you know, in my, my direct deposit, so um, that just meant I had to go out and rec- recruit students. Um, but what was crazy, I, I talked to um, a couple of mentors when it happened, um, and I knew I didn't want to go back, but that's scary. And one of my mentors said, yeah, you should not be doing that if that's not what you want to be doing, but certainly don't turn down that contract unless you know how you're going to make the money, um, which is great advice, but not what I wanted to hear. So I talked to someone else, and he <laughs> said, um, absolutely just quit, get out of there. Um, everyone knows who you are um, and what you do, and I guarantee the work will come to you. Um, so I, I did what he, you know, I took that advice and I turned down that contract. And um, within two months, I want to say that happened in July. By September, um, this is 2014, I had so much work I didn't know what to do with it. Um, and things kind of just started falling in my lap. 
and it, I um, mentioned the Alexander technique um, was always on the periphery. Um, I had, hadn't really noticed in my, all my busyness, um, I hadn't really noticed how much I per, put that on the back burner or how many things I was saying no to. Uh, so I figured out how to make Alexander technique its own thing. I, I do charge um, substantially more for an Alexander lesson than an, an oboe lesson because it's a different field. So I had some things to start out that way. And I have a waiting list, uh, currently I have a waiting list for Alexander Technique as well. Um, so uh, I, I think I'm lucky to live in a city that uh, has high demand <laughs> uh, for both oboe and Alexander Technique. But uh, yeah, I want to say it all just kind of worked out. Um, but I think um, it wasn't just things fell on my lap. I'm... Uh, I, I definitely, I, I mentioned, I'm a recovering perfectionist. Um, I have high expectations for myself. I always do the best I can. Um, I, I'm really great uh, at, well, it's getting worse, but I used to be really, really good at writing back email. Um, just that, that quick turnaround. Um, if you're self-employed, man, you better be available <laughs> to write back and, and, and get that gig. What advice do you have for other self-employed musicians who are listening and other people who are unhappy um, doing what they're doing and are contemplating making a dramatic shift in how they make their money? Uh, what advice? I think uh, you need to be true to yourself. Um, you need to know what you want from your from your career um, or from your, the work that you're doing uh, and as you said we, we kind of have these two sort of templates you're going to go to a school you're going to be a professor or you're going to be in the orchestra um, and I think we all know that that's not true um, I don't know how honest we are with ourselves about it um, along the way but there's so many ways to make um, a living in music and uh, in fact I I didn't even know what I was doing was a career. Like I said, I'm just doing what I do. Um, it was actually Jackie Wilson a couple of years ago. <laughs> to your listeners, listeners, if you ever are feeling down on yourself, call Jackie Wilson. She will <laughs> yell positive affirmations at you <laughs> and give you some perspective to tell you what is really going on in your life. Um, I yeah, I, didn't, I, didn't, <laughs> yes, I know. Glass of wine is optional. But... Um, <laughs> Yeah, and it was Jackie. It, I was in her car. We'd gone out to dinner. She was dropping off, me off at my apartment, and she was like, Laura, this is a career, woman. <laughs> um, and I, I just hadn't thought that. I thought I was, like, in this awkward transitional phase um, like between academic jobs or between adjunct jobs. I didn't even know. I thought I was this lost puppy. But I was working more than full-time in my field, and, and I remember that conversation telling you, Jackie, that um, – Everything I'm doing is what I want to be doing. I have an, a really great studio. I have great students. I'm um, performing. I'm in a professional living quintet. Um, at the time, I was running a, a little double read ensemble, so I was conducting and coaching people, um, doing Alexander technique, writing articles. So I'm doing everything. My, my tenure file looks amazing um, for, <laughs> you know, my self-employed <laughs> file, but... Um, I think that's, that's the key is, is doing things that make you happy. Um, and sometimes uh, things don't make us happy and we do them anyway. But in the big picture, are, are you doing in music what, what it is that you want to be doing? 
Um, and I, I really like, uh, in your interview with uh, Eugene Isakov, he, he said he always asks his students, why are you in music? And they say, oh, I love music. And he says, wrong answer. And I, the right answer was that you're, you love playing music for other people. And, and I think that's so true that there is, it's not just about us. There's always um, the other. There's the student that you're talking to um, or the audience that you're playing for. And those um, if you feel that you're connecting to other people that way, I think that's really useful as well. Um, at some point for me, um, you know, there is, as a self-employed musician, there's this disease of yes, um, which I think is the ugly sister of the glorification of busy. <laughs> um, they're both awful things that we can really fall into. Um, and there is a sense of, like, I better say yes to everything because I don't know when people are going to stop asking and that's when you get to that studio of 30, when you only really like working with 10 of them. Um, you can create the culture you want in your studio. Um, it might take 10 years, but um, so saying no to people that you don't think are right for you in your studio um, makes room for someone else that will say yes, you know, or that, you know, will make room for you to say yes to someone you do want. So um, knowing your boundaries um, in that way can help create this culture where you're you're happy with what you're doing, um, and also uh, knowing when you you're wearing yourself too thin. Um, and I say that as a complete hypocrite because I'm worn pretty thin right now, but um, I recognize it. So that's a big step. But uh, finding that balance where you're not overworking um, and you're not compromising on any of your work. Uh, one last thing for me was um, knowing which gigs to say no to. Um, and this, some of this is just financial decisions, so I know what I charge for lessons. Um, if I'm asked to play, like, in a local musical theater production where it's, you know, $30 a service, and the services, there's, like, 18 services, and they're all three hours, that's a big financial loss for me. Um, so I will absolutely turn that down. Um, but I always give a list of names, so you maintain that that collegial spirit, like, no, I'm too good for this. Well, no, I, I'm sorry, I can't do this. Here's some people that can help you. Um, so always maintaining good relationships, but knowing knowing your limits and making sure that your your finances are balanced, um, I think, is important. You mentioned your professional woodwind quintet, um, which, of course, we know is Black Marigold. Can you talk to us a little bit about your activities with them and the type of opportunities you guys have been pursuing and, and whatnot? What activities are on Laura Medisky's plate as a chamber musician? Yeah, uh, Black Marigold, uh, we've been a group for five years, uh, since 2012, and um it, it grew out of someone's basement. We, it was five musicians that got together just to play quintets over the summer and um, it sort of evolved into uh, what it is now, which is um, an amazing quintet that we all squeeze into our already full-time lives. So uh, Black Marigold is sort of a side project um, that, uh, you know, without it, we'd all be okay. But having it in our lives is, is you know, we're making great music and, and we're playing great music. So um, it, I, I call it a professional quintet. We're not like out booking gigs all the time. Sometimes we, um, you know, we'll do our concert series. We don't charge um, tickets, but we, we take donations and things like that. So it really is um, more of a labor of love than anything else. Um, but we've, we've done some 
some fun things. Um, and there's uh, in Wisconsin, in, in this area, in southern Wisconsin, there's actually a lot of uh, little concert series, um, either at churches or little museums and things like that. And um, people find us, and we, we go play on these um, little concert series in small towns, um, which have been um, some of our most fun <laughs> performances. So, for example, uh, there's this little town called Baraboo, Wisconsin, um, north of here that has a circus museum, and there's all this Ringling Brother culture there. And uh, we went up there and played for this Ringling Brother Bed and Breakfast um, concert series. And we happened to um, have a piece by Robert S. Cohen um, called Calder Circus, which he just sent to us um, and said, hey, will you play this? And it ended up being a really fun piece. So we played the circus piece at the circus-themed <laughs> bed and breakfast. And this old um, elderly gentleman came up to us after with his cane, kind of hunched over. I mean, he had to be mid-80s or older. And he said, I just love this concert. This is the first classical music concert I've heard since college. <laughs> And it was just, oh. it was just, it was like, that is why we do this. So, um, we haven't set out to do it, but we've had this sort of outreachy kind of, um, vibe to Black Marigold, um, just because of the area we're in. Uh, our latest project last summer, um, we worked with a composer, Brian DuFord, um, it was a commission. The whole thing was Brian's idea, but we, we officially have commissioned this piece, um, called Beer Music. And uh, it is, um, well, we saw pint glasses at our concert. So Brian had seen this uh, picture of us with our pint glasses and said, I want to write you a, a piece about beer. And we all laughed, and then it ended up that he was serious. <laughs> but um, so Brian came to Madison, and we did all this beer tasting so he could write us this, you know, 12-minute piece or whatever inspired by Madison beer. Well, we ended up trying, like, 50 beers that weekend, and uh, – there were so many great uh, beers that he ended up writing this 18 movement work. So we have this 45 minute piece um, when we were, we were only expecting 12 minutes. Um, so it ended up being this huge project. Um, and just because of the timeline, we hadn't even um, learned them all by the time the premiere happened. So um, yeah, we've been involved with this beer music project for um, over a year. And IDRS this summer, we're performing the, the, for the first time the whole piece in its entirety. So that's been a really cool project to be part of. And um, we're hoping to record um, in the upcoming year as well. Laura, it's been such a joy to talk to you. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, where can our listeners find you on the Internet? I have a website, uh, lauramedici.com, and my quintet has a website as well, which is blackmiracle.com. Awesome. Thanks so much, Laura. Thank you.